0: So Wendy surprised me a couple of weeks back. She started talking about wanting to watch the movie Hoosiers. Now understand, Wendy has never wanted to watch a sports movie, though I find it kind of funny because God has chosen to speak to her in unanticipated ways through sports movies in the past. But that's that's another story. For those of you not familiar with Hoosiers, it's a true story of a small town in Indiana where the basketball team overcomes tremendous odds and finds themselves in the state championship playing in a humongous arena, a hundred times bigger than anything they've ever played in before. In one of the most profound clips in the movie, and I think in movie history, the coach played by Gene Hackman walks the team into the arena the day before the game, and he can sense how overwhelmed they are by how huge it is. So he gets out a tape measure, has one of them measure the distance from the free throw line to the basket, 15 feet. And then as another kid another kid gets on the tallest guy's shoulders and he measures the rim to the floor, it's 10 feet. His point, while the arena is bigger, none of the basics have changed. The court's the same size. Everything in the game itself is the same. The key to winning is to keep doing the basics well. And that's the point where we are today in the story of Joseph. Last week, we heard Moses' last words, remember, remember the faithfulness and commands of God. Now the baton has been handed over to Joshua and God is leading the Israelites into a new season of taking the promised land. And and honestly, I believe this is the season God has quest and many other churches entering into right now, taking the promise that we've been longing for for a long time. God's people are about to go into a whole new arena, but the basics of what it means to walk with God never changes not for the Joshua, the Israelites, not for us in our lives. We go through seasons and and there's definitely a new season for us individually and globally right now. Seasons change. We change jobs. We change. We get married. We, we, We have kids. We change careers. And the coronavirus makes us all stay home. It closes businesses, temporarily devastates our retirement savings, puts us in new territory we've never faced in our lifetimes. The arena of life's changes, but the basics stay the same. You find success by doing the fundamentals well. It's the reason I love watching Steph Curry's warm-up routines. Have you ever watched him warm up? He does all the fundamentals over and over and over again. Now, granted, he may be practicing two or three of the fundamental skills at one time when we struggle to do one at a time, but he's doing the fundamentals nonetheless, facing this time in which we find ourselves. Growing in this time, finding peace in this time of uncertainty, coming out the other end stronger and better rather than more fearful. It comes down to the fundamentals of faith. Yet sometimes you and I feel unsure of how we are going to do this next arena of life. Do I have what it takes to provide? Do I have what it takes to love well during this lockdown time? And God takes out the tape measure and says the basics are the same. So let's start in Joshua 1 one through 9. The book of Joshua opens like this. It's one of my favorite portions of scripture. Let's read it. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, which doesn't mean he didn't have parents, Nun was his dad's last name. Can you imagine being called that? I was trying to think of funny puns that kids would have called Joshua's dad growing up, but none came to mind. God goes on. Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people into the land that I'm giving to them. Now a little context, Joseph and, uh, J- Joshua and Caleb ha- have been uh, two of the 12 spies sent out 40 years early. These are the two that came back saying, yes, the people in the cities are big, but our God is bigger. The other ten, 10 came back and said, there's no way we can do this. And isn't it interesting that we remember Joshua and Caleb, but don't remember the other 10? There's a life lesson in that alone. And this next part I memorized as a kid and spent decades regularly meditating on. It says, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Why? Because you're awesome? No. It says, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. This is where true confidence comes, not from everybody telling you how special or how awesome you are. Confidence is not so much looking at what's inside of you, but rather confidence comes from who is standing beside you. The text goes on, verse 7, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Wherever you go, whatever circumstance, in every step of walking into the promise of the good and the meaningful life God has planned for each one of us, he is with you. So be strong and courageous. Joshua's first major challenge in taking the promised land is conquering Jericho. And it's not easy because Jericho is the most fortified city in the world. Its walls were so thick you could ride two chariots across them. The next scene we look at in Joshua 5 takes place on the eve of the battle. As you can imagine, Joshua's pretty nervous. War is imminent. Joshua's led the people for a while now in the wilderness, but this is the very first time. This is a big leadership moment. It's understandable that he's having a bit of trouble speaking. So he's out praying in the dark at night, walking to unwind. And it says, when Joshua was up by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in a hand and Joshua went over to him. I mean, who walks over to a really big man with a drawn sword in the dark, dark, unsure of what side he is? I think I'd run. But Joshua, he's a man's man. I don't know what that makes me. Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Joshua challenges the guy. I can see the posters in his day. Joshua, the better Chuck Norris, with statements like, some people wear Superman pajamas, but Superman wore Joshua pajamas. And death once had a near Joshua experience. Verse 14. And the man, he said, No. No. Are you for our adversaries or us? No. What, What does that mean? No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. This is not a puny lieutenant. The guy is the top general. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you were standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, who exactly is standing in front of Joshua? You say an angel. Well, it can't be a mere angel because it says Joshua worshipped this man, and this man didn't stop Joshua. In Revelation twenty-two nine, John falls down to worship an angel, and the angel gets upset and says, "What are you doing? I'm a creature just like you. Worship God." In the Bible, angels never let you worship them. Joshua falls in his face here in worship, and this being doesn't say, Josh, get up, don't worship me. Instead, he receives the worship and says, dude, you're on holy ground, take your sandals off. The only other place we've seen that same phrase is when God appeared to Moses 80 years before. This is what theologians call a Christophany, or an Old Testament pre-Nativity appearance of God in human form. This is Jesus before he's born in the manger. Jesus always has and always will be the commander-in-chief of the Lord's armies. What Jesus is communicating in saying no is twofold. First, no, I'm not on your side means God doesn't take sides. He loves all, he pursues all, he tries to rescue all and save all and his judgment when it comes is just and not based on favoritism. Second, the answer no is saying to Joshua, you should be asking yourself, whose side are you on? There's only one side, God's. The implications of this for Joshua and us is profound. This is not a battle Joshua is going to fight for Jesus with Jesus' help. This is a battle Jesus is going to fight for Joshua to honor God's word and promises to Joshua and Israel. Now, we skipped this part of the story, but some of you may remember after the Israelites had crossed the River Jordan, right before this battle, God had Joshua circumcise all the men of Israel. Now, that's just what you want to do every man when you're preparing to go to battle. This leaves the men and all Israel in a vulnerable position. God is wanting the Israelites to know their safety and victory did not belong to them, but to God. The battle was his and not theirs. And the battle we are facing today is not ours. It is the Lord's to win and resolve. The story continues, Joshua 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Then God proceeds to give really odd instructions on how to take Jericho, even though they may be feeling a bit raw and vulnerable from the circumcision. I mean, Israel is amped up for a fight. They're there for that. But God tells them, I want you to put the Ark of the Covenant in front of you and march around the city in silence once a day for six days. And then on the seventh, I want you to do it seven times. And then when you finish that seventh lap, shout and I'll take care of the rest. I mean, this is bizarre. Imagine if this happened in a football game. The coach says, hey, offense, don't run a play. I want you guys to just hold hands in the huddle and sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. I mean, how hard must this have been? Then God says, verse 18, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. All the silver and the gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Now, that's an important detail we'll come back to in a moment. The Israelites did as instructed. At the end of the seventh lap in the seventh day, as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. And then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys with the edge of the sword. Now many object questioning this passage saying, how can we say this is God's word when it says stuff like that? I mean, Richard Dawkins has referenced passages like this and saying the old the God of the Old Testament is jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, tholicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochist, capriciously malevolent bully. And what that quote proves is Richard Dawkins owns the thesaurus, but he doesn't know the Bible nor does he have solid logic regarding love and justice. God is loving and merciful, but judgment is a reality. We've talked about this a lot in the past. For for those of you who haven't heard me, let's let's just do the short version. If we want love, we must also accept judgment. If your child were one of the people who was captured and tortured and burned to death in a cage or beheaded on a video by ISIS, is it not love that motivates a desire for justice, wanting to rid the earth of those who are unwilling to repent of their radical jihadi ways, those who refuse to live in peace with others? Was it not loving and just to want to rid the earth of the radical SS Nazis who did human experiments, torturing and killing millions? If you can love your child and bring judgment out of love, if you can love humanity and justice enough to act to rid the earth of evil, then how much more does God bring true justice out of love? Further, when making the covenant promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, almost 600 years earlier, God says this of the people. He is now asking Joshua to annihilate. It says, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, that Hebrew word translated not yet complete is a picture word. It's a picture of a bowl that is not yet full. The sin of the Amorites 600 years earlier was not full enough for God's mercy to move from patience to judging them. Now, 600 years later of patience and mercy, the bowl is full and now is the time of judgment. You think you have patience, waiting on your spouse and family member or boss to change from their destructive ways, waiting a few years. God's patience and mercy is far greater than any of ours. Yet here's maybe the most interesting thing in this story as it relates to God and judgment. If you're familiar with the story, you will remember a part of the story we didn't read that when the Israelite spies were in Jericho, a prostitute named Rahab hid them when the authorities came looking for them, seeking to kill them. Rahab acknowledged her sin and the sin of her people against God, repenting and putting her faith in God. An Amorite prostitute and God, because of her faith, not only spared her, but he saved her entire family. God would have spared everyone in Jericho had they been willing to repent. And the little we know from history, the Amorites were a really evil culture. We know it from archaeology and other historical records, but the Bible also says in Deuteronomy 12, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. See, this judgment of God has nothing to do with race or arbitrary pettiness or meanness. This is simply... The authority of a long-suffering, outrageously merciful and patient God coming to an end and bringing justice in a just manner after 600 years. Well, some might say, well, what about the innocents, especially the children? Two considerations there. First, sin always has a communal dimension. Your sin is never just your sin. If you abuse, you damage and create sin in the next generation. Second, the Bible speaks in a lot of places about not holding the children accountable for the sin of their parents. And throughout Jewish and Christian history, there has always been a theology of the age of accountability. So the worst that happens in this is the innocent get caught up in death early and beat us all to the best place of all, heaven, where there is no more suffering, no more death, no more sin. It's not a bad exchange. Unless, of course, you choose to believe this world and this life is what really matters most, which is not a Christian biblical view of life, death, and eternity. As Christians, death is not something we fear. Instead, it is a time of salvation, restoration, and leaving sin behind. So let's jump back into the story, Joshua 7. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan. Of the tribe of Judah, They uh, he was of the tribe, took, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua didn't know at this point that that had happened. So Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, the next city over, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. In other words, compared to Jericho, Ai is a pushover. And notice what is conspicuously absent in this text that we see essentially every other place is that Joshua didn't stop to inquire of God. He took the word of the spies and said, just go do it. But it didn't turn out easy. The Israelites were defeated. The people become distraught. What happened? Why has the power of God left us? So Joshua then gets on his face before God and God reveals to him what Achan had done. The sin needs to be dealt with before God's presence and power will come back on them. If I had time, I could tell you stories of hidden sin of this nature where God's blessing is removed, resulting in the destruction of churches, families, and individuals. Notice, how God describes what Achan did. It says he broke faith. Now think about that. It looks to me like Achan just got a little greedy, like he just wanted a little bigger piece of the pie. But God says Achan broke faith with God. Achan essentially said, instead of trusting and depending on you, God, to fight for me and provide for me, I'll take matters into my own hands. From these stories, we see three basic fundamentals of the faith that God reminded the Israelites to constantly practice that they came into this new big arena of the promised land. The implication is for you and I to succeed with God in any area of our lives, school, marriage, career, these are the basic fundamentals that form the habits, attitudes, and the posture of your life. First one is surrender. The man who appears to Joshua in chapter 5 makes it clear that he came not as a lieutenant to assist Joshua, but as the general to command Joshua. How do you see God in your life? The season of uncertainty and calling out to God to bring things back to normal and good in the face of the virus tends to reveal in each of us that I think many of us tend to relate to God as though he is our faithful lieutenant, someone who can influence us, guide us, comfort us, take care of us, help us through tough times. God wants to do all those things for you. He wants to bless you and take care of you. But he comes first as Lord, Master, and General. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't have the Jesus Christ part of him if you don't first have him as your Lord. You can't sign up for the military because you admire the ideas of a general and not unconditionally obey that general, not unless you want to spend a lot of time in the brig. You can't have the loving, gracious, miracle-working Jesus if Jesus isn't your Lord. You don't get the sea-parting, mountain-moving God if God isn't master of every part of your universe. When people say, I want a loving Jesus, a helpful Jesus, to save-me-and-take-me-to-heaven-friend Jesus, but not Lord Jesus or commanding Jesus, they are certainly not following the real Jesus, but rather a made-up version of their own God. But what we see with Aiken is he does religious activity with only partial obedience. Something many of us can do. It's not like Aiken in his mind has switched sides or quit believing in God. He just felt like he needed to take control of some areas in his life to guarantee his happiness and security rather than do things God's way. He may have thought, I mean, what's, what's this hurting? Who's going to miss it? And how often do we excuse our lack of obedience with that kind of an excuse? Achan's actions were evil, not primarily because of what he did in taking for himself something God said was only for God or what he did to the other people, but because of how his actions broke trust in his relationship with God as his Lord. let me ask you, what does this Achan kind of compromise look like in your life? In what areas do you feel like you cannot or you refuse to trust God's ways and you do things your own way? In what areas of your life do you live by your rules rather than God's rule? Is there a certain habit or activity you feel like you can't really be happy without that you know is not God's way? Maybe it's about your future plans. You say, God, I want to be—I want you to be part of my life, but then you tell him, here's where I'm going, and I, you need to come along, and I hope you'll bless me. For many of us, it's what we do with our money. We just can't trust God enough to obey him. What do you take or keep hidden in your tent because you don't trust God enough to do things His way? See, Lordship is complete, total, exclusive, or it isn't there at all. If I say to my wife, if I'm going to be, I'm going to be exclusively yours except Friday evenings from seven until Saturday noon, that isn't going to go very well, is it? I mean, Jesus doesn't want to just be part of your life. He wants to take over and make your whole life over. C.S. Lewis used to say, choosing to follow Jesus and let him take over your life was like you being an old rickety house where a lot of stuff doesn't work. And when you choose to follow him, Jesus comes in and gets to work fixing leaks and patching the roof and unplugging drains and making things so much better. But then God rips off the drywall and you object, but, but you didn't realize there were cool bricks inside of it. Then to your dismay, he rips out the comfortable carpet and you discover there are hardwoods that once sanded and finished are spectacular in you. You're impressed. But then God starts to tear down whole sections of the house and you're like, well, what's happening? See, God is often building a quite a different house out of your life from the one you thought of, adding new additions you never thought of. You thought you were gonna be made into this cute little condo, but instead God is making you into a palace in which he intends to live. I mean, God has a better plan for Joshua and the people of Israel, but it started with the fundamental of surrender. He has a better plan for you, and it starts with total surrender for you and I to him. Second, courage. Moses' words last week taught us the primary thing that derails obedience is fear. Can you imagine what it must have been like for the Israelite soldiers to walk around Jericho every day and not do anything while they were marching, there were people on the wall taunting them. So they get home at the dinner table that evening, and the family asks, well, what did you do today? Well, we walked around. Well, they hurled insults at us. Why is God doing this in this way? Because what he wanted to do through them was not as important as what he wanted to do in them. God wanted them less focused on the outcome and more focused on obedience because the outcome is God's responsibility. Faithful obedience is our responsibility. As the Israelites were walking, what do you think was happening in the Israelites' hearts and minds? That something was changing on the inside. They're probably thinking God is really powerful. He doesn't need to, us to accomplish these things for him. He spoke the world into existence. He provided for us in the wilderness. He parted the Red Sea. He's got this. More important than what we do for God is who we become. I've learned I like to know two things when I obey God. Why am I doing this and when will it be over? But God usually doesn't answer either of those questions. So what we need in these times is courage. Courage is simply this. Even when you can't see results, because you know God is at work and God is faithful, you just keep going. Endurance is what defines courage in the long run. What is your Jericho that you just need to get up and you need to keep facing it and keep walking? Number three, waiting in faith. In the story, we see the Israelites were ready for a fight, but the real question was if they were ready to wait. I don't like waiting. I have one child who's enjoying all the waiting at home that this shelter-in-place is affording as she's an introvert. She's loving the time to just be with no expectations. It's not that way for me and many of you. We just want to be doing things and making things happen. Sometimes the hardest part of faith is waiting to see what God is doing, waiting for the doctor to call waiting for the callback from a job interview, waiting for that promotion that seems to always slip away or be delayed, waiting for the pregnancy test, waiting and praying for someone you love to make healthier choices. See, a key fundamental is waiting with God. I realize some of uh, some of your lives are actually more hectic now that you're working and homeschooling. God bless you. Yet I still want to encourage you in this time to take advantage of any quiet time, be it as small as two to five minutes, and learn a little more about waiting and resting in God. As we briefly noted, Israel's defeat in Ai happened not primarily because of Achan's sin, but primarily because they didn't take time to listen to God and follow God. You may have noticed All throughout Lent, we're trickling out different ways to approach prayer, worship, Bible studies, solitude, and little posts on Facebook. During this Lenten season, as we reconnect to and practice the fundamentals, this week we'd like for you to specifically focus on waiting with God through silence and solitude. Dallas Willard calls the practice of silence and solitude the two most radical disciplines of the Christian life. Similarly, Henry Nouwen wrote that without solitude, it is almost impossible to live a spiritual life. Sounds like some key fundamentals to me. So I wanna invite you this week today to start practicing more fully silence and solitude, meaning we separate ourselves from people and things in order to focus on God. In the midst of our noisy and distracting world, we quiet outer and inner voices to listen to God. And studies show that most people start to feel uncomfortable with silence after 15 seconds. Let's see how we can push that limit. This week, to start off with this week, put in your calendar two to 10 minutes once a day to be alone in silence. Some of you may go further than that. Find a place where you can sit still, uninterrupted, sit straight, breathe and slowly and deeply and naturally offering yourself to God. Let go of the cares and the worries of life. Your prayer might be as simple as come Holy Spirit or I love you, Lord, and I want to know you more close your eyes and receive God's always present presence. If you're distracted, gently refocus back on God. We started a new video series cast this today of the message on our website at questvenue.org slash live. So going forward, you can find our live messages either on Facebook or on our website. I wanna encourage you to go there after we're done today and download a PDF handout of additional tips to help you make your practice of silence and solitude meaningful. Let me pray for you. Lord, I just bless everyone listening. I pray, Father, that in the silence and the downtime that we have now, in the forced aloneness that we have at times right now, that we would learn to connect with you. We'd learn to wait on you. We'd learn to wait on your word before we make decisions. We'd learn to wait on your presence and to know your presence. And we'd learn to trust you In the waiting, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, before you go, uh, Maddie is going to lead us in a song of worship. Uh, this song is a beautiful song it it 's called the blessing and it just came out on march sixth and on youtube it 's already got over four million hits it 's just it 's a song based out of uh, scripture, number six in passages in deuteronomy uh, Number six is the blessing that many of you, if you grew up in liturgical settings, you probably heard it at the end of service in benedictions on a regular basis it 's such a meaningful text. Allow yourself to be caught up in this worship to both receive the blessing for yourself and to sing it. And give the blessing of God to those around you. God bless. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G O. E-O west.org. Thanks for listening.